This is AJ Bingham, CEO of The Bingham Group. I want to give a personal thank you to the Lowy Law Firm for their podcast sponsorship. The Lowy Law Firm is the premier personal injury law firm in Austin, having recovered tens of millions of dollars for their clients since 2005. Now on with the show. Welcome to the BG Podcast, conversations at the intersection of business, community, and public policy from the Austin metro and around Texas. Today's episode is brought to you by the Lowy Law Firm, delivering top-notch customer service in the Austin area. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com podcast and on iTunes and Google Play. Hello, this is AJ Bingham, CEO of Bingham Group, and our guest today is Pastor Joseph Parker, Senior Pastor of David Chapel Missionary Baptist Church. Welcome to the show, Pastor. Thank you, AJ. Glad to be here. Um, I want to start, well, first of all, I've known of you and got to know you the last few years uh, closer, and you've been beyond your work in the community you've had a you know a varied career um in private sector, private sector world as well i want to start with just your background and give you know kind of sure. an overview of that from your path um to the pulpit and go from there well i was raised in birmingham alabama and uh went all the way through high school there and then went to college in atlanta morehouse college went to University of Georgia for a master's in public administration. Left there, got married uh, in Georgia, and uh, met my wife there at the university. And <clears throat> she and I moved uh, to um, Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth area. My mm-hmm. father was a pastor, and while I was in college in Atlanta, I got called to a church in Fort Worth. And so uh, the family had moved uh, to Texas uh, then. And so in 76, we decided to come there. I worked for uh, a few months in the um, Tarrant County District Attorney's Office uh, investigating child, uh, not child, uh, welfare fraud cases. Mm-hmm. And then, um, um, I guess in October, we got married in August of 76. In October, uh, September, October, I got a job at the city manager's office in Dallas. And so we moved to Dallas. And I worked in the city manager's office there, uh, starting out in management and budget, uh, research and budget, and then got promoted to be an assistant to an assistant city manager who was over urban development for the city of Dallas, and then uh, became manager of uh, youth employment program. And in 79, uh, we moved to Austin for me to go to law school here. And uh, so in 79, we started here at UT. We joined this church, David Chapel, um, and my last semester of law school, I was called, uh, finally submitted rather, to the call to ministry. And so started running both tracks, got licensed in, in 83, mm-hmm. and started running both tracks, became an associate pastor here at the church, and served with um, my father in the ministry or my predecessor for about 10 years. He died in 1992, and I was still developing my practice. I was a civil litigator. Started off in the county attorney's office working for Margaret Moore, and then was there with Ken Oden and was his um, chief of criminal trial division. And then left, went with a law firm here in town, civil uh, trial law firm, Mm -hmm. and that's what I did uh, from 86 to uh, 92, in March of 92, if I'm recalling correctly. 
and got offered the job to be chief of litigation for the state bar of Texas. So I went there and did that. What does that entail for those who aren't familiar with the bar? Uh, the Bar Association, of course, is the regulatory agency in the state of Texas that governs the behavior, the ethics, the practice of lawyers. And um, I was asked to be the chief of litigation. They had not had one before then. The general counsel was new. I knew him, and he asked me to come on board and be his chief of litigation. Uh, at that time, we had, let me see, probably four or five offices. Uh, one was here in, the main office, of course, was here in Austin. Then we had a small office in Houston, San Antonio, Fort Worth, Dallas, and El Paso. And there were lawyers in those, and I would have to go and basically manage the staff. I would have the opportunity to select whatever cases I wanted to try if I wanted to do any. And uh, so I did that right at two years uh, because he died. I started there in March of 92. Mm. Pastor Obi died in May of 92. And <clears throat> I was uh, um, called to the church in September of 92 and told the church to give me some time to, to downsize basically my practice. And during that time, I was also transitioning into uh, doing mediation. Mediation was just getting started, and I started mediating in 1991, something in that. And, and I was looking at that as a way to transition because I knew that ministry was taking over. Uh, and I started teaching at the law school in the trial advocacy program students how to try lawsuits and did that for about 10 years. Um, and then transition, started doing uh, mediation, um, uh, eventually gave up teaching at the law school, and then started giving myself basically to the pastor in the ministry. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to seminary uh, when I started uh, preaching uh, in uh, 82, 83, and so just kind of did that here and there, was content with preaching sometimes, but practicing, doing my trial mm -hmm. practice. And um, so once I went to the church, I then went ahead and completed, uh, went to Baylor. I was driving back and forth from Baylor, from Austin to Baylor to get my Master's of Divinity, which I ended up getting in theology. And then uh, uh, that was in 97 when I got that. And then I went and got my doctorate in ministry, in uh, urban ministry, um, at a seminary in Boston. Uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary, and so I would go up from here and up and there. Yeah, I know your bio. Uh, I can't remember the <clears throat> one of several bios I've, I've said all about, saw yeah. about you when I was doing some research, but the I think the the overall view was a modern Renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that holds true. And, um, uh, there's a lot of so, movement. Yeah. A lot of movement, but yeah. um, you yeah. know all the pieces of a puzzle that fit together and to where we are today. Yeah. Um, I want to touch real quick on. On um, when you mentioned the call of the ministry, I mm -hmm. think this ties into some of our questions about leadership as well. Sure. But like you feel called to be a leader, um, what was that? What was the call for you? Uh, it was uh, first of all, it was a journey. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, I have four sisters, no brothers. I'm the only son. Uh, there are a number of preachers in my family, um, and so. Uh, growing up as a pastor's son, particularly in the black church, there is uh, uh, 
an expectation uh, by people in the church that he will become, the son will become a preacher. Um, and so there were people in the church who said that, you know, I was going to preach. I was a church boy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I never got any push from my mother or my father uh, to do that. They just allowed me to, to live and experience. I didn't uh, grow up where I was uh, so strict, where I couldn't go to parties and dance and date. And, you know, I, I didn't have that kind of family background. And so, um, so being in the church, I grew up in that. And growing up in Birmingham, it was not very not uh, not very diverse. It was first of all when I came up up through the eighth grade, it was segregated. And you, you grew up in Birmingham at time. I mean, it's yes. My father was uh, active. Uh, he and Dr. Keene actually <clears throat> were Morehouse schoolmates, and so my father and I've got a, a deal I could show you on that. My father was one of the founding pastors of the, the Montgomery boycott he was pastoring then at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so subsequent to that, I was I was born in a place called Anniston in 52. And so after that, my parents moved to Montgomery. And I guess probably about 57 or so, they moved from Montgomery to Birmingham. And he and Dr. Keene, of course, kept, and my father was stayed active. Uh, with that and founded uh, uh, SCLC and all that kind of thing. Was Which is the... Uh, Southern Christian, that was Dr. King's organization, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, he was, uh, as I said, my father was part of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Um, and so, and so, uh, so I grew up in a context in which preachers and the church were socially engaged or at least those that I was around and and so uh, and so I saw no no lines between being involved in the church being involved in the community because it was what I saw my father do mm -hmm. and what I saw others do so all of this is shaping me as I'm growing up my father's taking me around with him to bombing sites and 16th Street and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm remembering, uh, I remember uh, going that Sunday and even still seeing the smoke coming up from the, the, the bomb. This is the Birmingham, this in, is the... Um, 16th Street, uh, the four, four girls that got murdered. Mm -hmm. And there were other uh, houses uh, that got bombed in Birmingham during those days. And Dr. King would come in. One was uh, his brother's home that got bombed. I remember my father taking me with them over to the house uh, that had been destroyed and other things like that. Of course, I wasn't aware I was what uh, preteen, so mm. I wasn't focused on how significant this was. And and seeing Dr. King as a boy, he's just a preacher friend of my father. You know, I wasn't connected in my mind with the, the, the significance of what was happening. And so, so all of this is starting to shape and form me, and uh, and so uh, I had no interest in being a preacher. I had no intention, and and so um, I was actually planning when I was in high school. I was heavy into sciences and and math, and I was in the pre med club and all that kind of thing. In the band, I played instrument up through college, and um, so. Uh, my intention was to become a, a foot specialist, primarily because I'd gone with my mother to a 
foot doctor that she had, a black doctor there in Birmingham, and I, he would let me come in the room, and so I wanted to become uh, a podiatrist. Yeah. Uh, and so I went to Morehouse thinking I was going to do podiatry uh, and really didn't like, didn't want to take heavy sciences there. So I started thinking about doing computer science, and I took a class called Fortran and didn't like it and didn't do well in it. And so uh, I was pondering, what do I want to do? Where am I going? What am I going to major in? And so uh, there was a sign on campus about a vocational um, test that was being administered. So I said, well, I think I'll go and just see what that's about. So I took the test. And the top two things that came back high for me was ministry and law. So ministry was not an option in my mind, so mm -hmm. I did pre-law. And, and so my, my parents paid for my college, and by the time I graduated, they said, that's it. And I ended up getting the fellowship to go to University of Georgia in public administration. So I was single. I said, I'll go to Athens and see what's going on up there, and met my wife in the same program. And then still wasn't sure. At that time, I was trying to decide if I felt a calling to the law. Yes. Uh, because I grew up, I was in uh, a circle of guys, all of whom were law school focused. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't caught up in competition as opposed to it really being a calling because I had been raised understanding calling on lives. And so, um, so I kept that in the background and in 79, my wife and I started talking about, we'd been married, uh, uh, what, uh, three years then, and we were talking about whether or not we were going to start having children or I was going to go to law school. So we went into prayer, and I said to her, I want to stay in Texas. If I can get into the University of Texas, that's what I want to do. So we came here with the intention of going back to, to there. The, the pastor I had in Dallas, uh, his father, the, my pastor in Dallas, the pastor here started preaching under his father. Mm -hmm. So he directed me to David Chapel. And whether I was in Athens or here, I always went to church. I wasn't involved like I was growing up, but I always went to church regularly. And every pastor, uh, I was involved with United Methodist Church in Athens. Every pastor asked me, when was I going to give in to my call? So they saw something. And Pastor Obi asked me, Pastor Bailey asked me, Pastor uh, Daniels asked me. And so, so, so I, I then go to Dallas and get under this pastor who really helped me to see that uh, the black church could have an effective ministry, holistic ministry, which was what I always thought ministry should be about. And so I came here. And, and what would that mean? Just expand on that a little bit. A holistic ministry well, outside the boundaries of the church. To the whole, yeah, minister to the whole person, not just talk about heaven. And and uh, that that we wanted heaven here on earth, and that the that the church needed to be engaged in the lives of people and making a difference in the community and being prophetic and being uh, justice focused, uh, as well as speaking of scripture and how you can live uh, a certain life according to Christ. Um, and, and I saw ministries and programs that were reaching into, this was a very vibrant, vibrant church. It was a Concord church. 
And at that time, I mean, I'm, I got married uh, a month from being 24. I was 23. My wife had just turned 23 a few days before we got married. So we were real young. And we came here when I was 26, about to turn 27. So we were still young. It was a new church, uh, a young pastor. So it was real vibrant and a lot of energy. And a lot of things were happening that were, in that time, out of the box. And, and so that made me see possibilities as opposed to traditional church, which is what I grew up seeing, even though I grew up with a father who was socially active. The church itself was traditional in how it did church. It's just an institution. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, so I started thinking, okay, it can happen. It can happen. Uh, and so he, uh, Pastor E.K. Bailey, is the one that really softened me up to begin considering the consideration of it. But what had happened some years before that, my last semester in college, the church my father pastored uh, when I was born invited me to come and speak. And uh, men's day or some special day. So I went from Atlanta to Anniston. And uh, looking back on it, there was something that came over me, and, and it could have been part emotional. I think it was probably my feeling of prick, so to speak, about being called. I was standing in the pulpit where he had preached and where he was pastoring when I was born. And going back to it, that's when I can probably say the call started coming in the last semester. Uh, and interestingly, the last semester, of my law school was when I finally gave in to mm -hmm. So I'm talking about several several years by the time I became convinced. And so when when um, when I offered myself to this church, I was absolutely convinced that not only did God want me to pastor, but God wanted me to pastor this church. And I said to the committee, I said, I don't know. I said to the committee, I'm absolutely convinced that God has called me to this church, but I don't know if the people will call me. And so it ended up happening. It was controversial uh, when it happened. And, and so I was convinced. I did not know, just like when I went to law school, I, I knew I was called to be a lawyer, but I really didn't know what kind of laws on practice I, I had. I was the same way. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I mean, I just kind of went and found um, some gifting mm -hmm. in there. And then, okay, okay, I'll do this. And and so uh, when I was talking with Pastor Obi, he was talking about how you argue, uh, you, you argue your case or argue the gospel. The same, you know, mm -hmm. sort of deal. And, and in fact, there's some similarities even in, in how I study and prepare uh, with how we do lawsuits. So, um, so I was convinced of a calling. In the beginning, I was, a, 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 as, a, as a preacher, I wasn't necessarily convinced I was called a pastor. But over time, I was convinced that I had a pastor's call. And that's when I started moving more toward moving away from a litigation practice to something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, a judge called me, uh, I was in my office, and a judge called me and said, I need you to come over here 
and mediate a case in my jury room. And I knew nothing about it, had no training at that time. And I said, Judge, I don't know anything about mediation. He says, well, you know, this is a new thing that's coming. You know, you're a preacher, you deal with disputes and in in ministry. And so I went and that's when it hit me that this is a way I can pull out of a litigation practice and I don't have to take mediation home. I go and mediate a case. It's over when I brought it to conclusion. And uh, I could keep my license active. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how, how it progressed. And, and the calling was just a sense of being overwhelmed. I was singing in the choir that Sunday morning. And, and it just hit me. From, from an emotional place. I just broke out, just started crying. And I rushed down from the choir stand and because I told Pastor Obi that I thought I was being called. And he didn't pressure me. And when I came down, you know, I was just crying. I said, I'm called. And that was that was it. Yeah. yeah so touching back an earlier comment you made about the, the holistic view um, in, your, yes. in your mind at the church and yes. outside, I mean, in the community as well. Um, and you, just over the years, um, you've written a number of editorials, yes. um, in the Austin American Statesman, just about the issues going on um, in Austin, but particularly that affect the black community. Mm-hmm. And um, related to that, just as a community, you know, you're someone who is objectively seen as a community, as a leader in the black community, and overall in Austin. Can we go into some of the things you're seeing in Austin that we can start off that uh, worry the most about where the city's going, um, mm-hmm. but also, you know, in a positive way, encourage you what you're seeing in the city. And this is particularly under both of these, under, under the lens of the, this, the raw economic prosperity that's pouring into Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll get your views on that. So just what worries you the most about what you're seeing, the influx of capital in the city, and also what encourage you, encourages you about that as someone who's very entrenched, um, in the, you know, in the, in the community. Yeah. Well, um, of course, the way I describe it to people is Austin is on autopilot. I mean, you know, we don't have to promote anymore who Austin, we don't have to promote anymore who Austin is. Uh, Austin is just growing. And of course, we all know that it's uh, always uh, in the top rankings of cities that are good places to, to live and so forth. So uh, what I'm encouraged about is that we have economic prosperity that's taking place. And, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, I am not convinced that everyone is benefiting um, from the economic prosperity. And I believe that we are in a city that, uh, that's occupied, so to speak, by good people, people with good hearts and good intentions. Uh, My concern is that we are maybe so consumed about the economic um, growth and prosperity uh, that we are neglecting what I would call some of the population groups. And one of the positive things is that we have a number of quality of life uh, commissions uh, here in each of which uh, is focused on whatever their population group is about. I'm not sure the extent to which the city actually funds the proposals 
of those quality of life or staffs them. And I know the African-American, there's an African-American Quality of Life Commission that's been around for a number of years. And I've been recently involved and talked with the city manager with a group of other uh, community uh, leaders about trying to get that uh, uh, supported through this budget that they just approved. And so, um, so the economic prosperity is a good thing. I'm, I'm not convinced that we are being uh, intentional about population groups, um, and uh, or, or I should say, as intentional as we should be, so that they can be um, elevated, so to speak, from an economic point of view. Uh, a lot has happened uh, in in recent years. You know, there was a time when when we were concerned about uh, not being able to attract particularly uh, young adult African Americans uh, to the city because of the lack of cultural things. I mean, the jobs were here, the salaries were here, but they uh, would go to Dallas or go to Houston for you know, concerts and things of that sort. I think that's changing somewhat because I think there has been a response to that in a variety of ways. And you have groups of individuals that are just kind of coming together, providing social networks, and you're having some organizations that are doing some organizational things. So I think at many different levels, uh, there there's an increase that's taking place to make it uh, a welcoming place. One of the concerns I have is in the midst of economic prosperity, that there is a uh, a lack of, or at least a limited historical knowledge of particularly East Austin. Um, my observation is that East Austin is now the cool place to live, particularly for the millennials and the young adult, generally speaking, kind of population. It is an expensive place, and therefore increasingly it's being colorized, not black or brown, but Anglo, white. It is also um, finding that many of these are highly educated and well um, uh, healed in terms of from a financial point of view, and consequently there are some ripple effects uh, that are uh, outpricing and pushing out people who are, as I refer to, as the indigenous group. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the, the underbelly sides of economic prosperity. I mean, uh, Chestnut, which is where this is located, is close to downtown, close to state government, and um, um, the jobs that are there, close to the University of Texas. And so this is prime for people um, who may not want to have to um, incur large transportation expenses. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've seen this since the late 90s happening, gentrification coming. And so, um, but, but gentrification is probably being experienced in virtually every city where there is economic prosperity. Yes. And, and what I see, <clears throat> as I understand cities, is that historically there is what I refer to as an accordion effect cities, uh, uh, high incomes are close in, and then over time you start seeing them move. That's what happened with suburban. It expanded out, mm -hmm. and so you saw that expand out to the suburban areas of Austin, 
proper and now you see a movement coming back in it's like the accordion is moving back and forth and so you had people moving out developing these new neighborhoods round rock pflugerville cedar park even going bastrop and elgin all of these places are becoming more urban now uh, probably driven though by more economic cost than anything but now you're starting to see coming in i was downtown at a meeting uh, at the uh, courthouse uh, federal courthouse uh, yesterday and I just looked up, of course you can see this on Mopac or 35, I just looked up and just looked and saw how many residential places are downtown. Mm -hmm. and, and I said to myself, I wonder how many people now live in downtown, you know? And so that then causes its own sorts of issues, you know? Uh, and so, uh, it's a good thing to have economic prosperity, but we have to be intentional and make sure that we are looking at what are the groups that are not benefiting. Now, that ties into schooling. You know, I mean, we're becoming um, a workforce that requires some specialized training, not necessarily a college degree, but some specialized training. So are our children in the school districts prepared with math skills or analytical skills and can they handle the jobs that are paying the decent wages so it's all interrelated um, and and I think we have to take a systemic uh, approach to trying to figure out how all of it works together yeah I know the, the city and the county Travis County are involved and I know there's a lot of workforce development yes. initiatives that have been you know they're coming online yes. and you know whether it will, on the public sector and the private sector side too so I know there's an acknowledgement of that right particularly in our city, as we're seeing, you know, like with this prosperity, it's, right. it's, it's broadly good, but it's still creating um, a larger gap between the haves, um, you know, quote-unquote, right. have-nots. That's right. Yeah, so. Well, and, and along with that, I'm seeing what I refer to as an intra-race division. Intra. Intra-race, particularly in the African-American community, that there is a, an increasing gap between the middle class and upper middle class African-Americans with those who are not in that and the new population that's moving in. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it in the churches. We're seeing it in the neighborhoods. Um, if I go to a concert that is what I would loosely call black culture concert, whether it's gospel or uh, rap, hip hop or some popular person and you go and it draws this major African-American uh, group, you, you look around and you ask, where are they? <laughs> yes, you know, yes. I mean, you yeah. look and you see, where, I know. Where, you know, where are they? <laughs> and so uh, we know that they're living in different places. Like Flickerville. Yeah. whatever, yeah. And, and when I was practicing law, I didn't have to be around black people. I never lived in East Austin. It was intentional for me to be engaged. And so I realized that you got people who, who don't see maybe another black during the work day. You know, because they may not have co-workers or a significant number. They may not have clients, you know. And so the connection there, this, this is why the church becomes more significant. Because in a place where you don't have, uh, for lack of better words, racial density, you need gathering spots, you know. Mm -hmm. And the church is really the last place for that. But increasingly... We are now seeing that it is not the attraction that it used to be when I was growing up.
Yeah, I think that um, I know that's just from studies I've seen posted. I mean, that's a it's not just isolated to the black community. That's kind of across the board. It's more that's of a right. generational thing. That's right. Who reasons. don't even go it's quote, just, go to church these days anyway? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And to your point though about the um, kind of the, the intra workings of um, you know at least within the black community, yeah. and so that's something I've just anecdotally noticed when I look at and again growing up in Austin um, and to where I am at <clears> now when. I definitely, I, I mean, I've probably seen more black people out and about just the kind of the, the things that I normally do, mm-hmm. but it, it is a mix. I mean, it's, it's because there a lot of the folks, those folks are drawn to, uh, from outside of Austin, from this prosperity. Right. Yeah. And it is, um, you know, I, I know there's all of these studies and talks that come out about the overall um, decrease of Austin's, um, black, or the Austin Metro's black population, mm-hmm. but the, I mean, the caveat to that to me is there. I think there has been an increase in the, you know, in along socioeconomic lines. Mm-hmm. Within that, overall, there's been an increase That's right. in the you know middle or really upper middle class, That's upper right. class Absolutely. segment. Even though the whole population is increasing, that part's increased. That's right. Um, just, and that's just from sight. Well, the, the, when when I'm invited uh, to venues and forums where there is let's see, let's say a significant uh, representation of middle to upper middle class African Americans. One of the messages that I've been pressing is that they are needed in our community and in the churches to as to to resource. And, and, and when I say resource, I'm not just saying just bring your money. I'm using that in a broad sense. Our young people need to see you. Our young people need to be able to touch you and know that they can become what you become because you did it. And so the, 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 the disconnect between being visible and present has all sorts of impact on young people. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of seeing and you can believe it. You know, that's, that's one of the benefits I have is growing up uh, in Birmingham. I mean, we had people, you know, A.G. Gaston, who was a black millionaire when I was growing up. You know, he was the one that funded a lot of Dr. King's uh, things. Um, and so I saw business people. I saw professionals. I had them in my family. And so that was, and then, then when I went to Atlanta, uh, they were everywhere. So I grew up n- not with a thought that you can't be. It's kind of like, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And so in, in our city, where the percentage of the whole is not as large, our young people, particularly those who come from um, uh, I'll say financially challenged homes. You know, I'm still running into some people, some young kids who never been touched UT's campus, and some whose parents still have thoughts about what that place is like. Mm. You know, all the park, that's right, that's right. All the stuff that that this group that comes in from outside of Austin that's attracted to its attractions. A lot of these kids are not one not aware. And two, don't take advantage of it, mm-hmm. you know. And so part of what, what I think is happening is I'm, I'm concerned, I've been concerned in speaking about this for a number of years, this division. Um, and, and there's got to be some reaching back. Um, and, I, and and some of that is happening. I'm not trying this to say This is within, within the black community, That's right. I feel. That's right. That's right. Just um, you touch on some of your broader initiatives or things you've been working on um, to date and Things you're, you know, maybe you're looking to get brought into. 
um, just regarding Austin, you know, issues they're facing Austin, so around affordability, around mm-hmm. um, gentrification and workforce, just, you know, you're again someone who's definitely a sought-after speaker, I know and a leader in the community, and just were, you know, I know you you did some work with this the um, it was the mayor's task force yes. institutional racism. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any other initiatives you're you know on the horizon? Well, um, and yeah, as a caveat to that, let me ask yeah. too, things you're working on and things you see, you know, the younger you know black you know, black professional community or just black community getting involved could get involved in. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, there are a lot of issues that Austin's having to deal with right now. And you mentioned the biggest issue, is, which is the affordability issue. And, of course, you can can um, find trails off of that into a variety of things. Um, and and so, um, uh, you know, there, there are – one of the things that I think that has been discouraging is I'm not sure that uh, – our younger people, not, I'm not saying younger leaders, but our younger people, I'm speaking young adults, understand the power of the vote and political engagement. I think they understand making money, but I don't know if they understand how politics and how voting impacts even all of that at, at all levels, whether it's a judge or whether it's a council member or whatever. And so part of what what I think is is uh, needing to happen is that when, when I talk to to I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to talk to to a number of young adults and what I have uh, been struck by is how for lack of better words how entrepreneurial this generation is they're, they're, they were all, they're, they're working they're working. I got a project, you know, it's, it's, I'm working my deal. I'm familiar with that. You know, it's it's that kind of, and you you see, it's not isolated. I talk to so many of them, they're working, they got something they're trying to work, you know, which is a good thing. And and just to have that, and and I'm saying to myself, that's amazing because uh, they're trying, they're striving, and they're trying to reach, they're trying to achieve. Uh, They don't necessarily... Uh, limit themselves to a box because you all have grown up in a time where you didn't, I didn't have computers. I got computers now. I didn't have cell phones, you know, so, and, and you got startups and, and, and all of these things that people are doing that was not an option when I was coming up as a young, young adult, you know. And so, so you've got this entrepreneurial spirit that, but but it tends to be about not broader impact, community impact. It tends to be I'm working something for me, mm-hmm. and that's the concern that I have. Now, you know, one of the things that impressed me when you invited me to the Young Business Young Men's Business Young League Men's Business Group was uh, uh, particularly that. Was it the summer program or the fall program? It was our it was our summer program, the yeah. Austin Sunshine Camps. Yes, yeah. that 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 was a reaching out, you know. Which, as I looked at that group, and I think I made some comments about looking at that group. Everybody in there was an achiever, up and coming, and in a few years would be in some of these major positions in our community. But for them to come and to give time like that, I think was impressive. 
I started out when I was in Dallas. I was a member of the Dallas JCs. Uh, although I was in in government, I was already doing kind of public service stuff. But I I I was raised to serve. The family in which I came and what I saw was raised to serve. So I've always looked for opportunities to serve. And so part of what I would like to see with our younger group is a a more of a servant mindset, which is not in conflict with economically advancing and building a business. You know, you can you can still do all of that. It may require quite a bit, but but what I'm concerned about is that we are not going to have, and I'm speaking now about African Americans in particular, enough African young African Americans who are going to reach out and back. And they look around when they get my age and they start seeing they've achieved, but who did they bring along? You know, so. And that's definitely something I personally take to heart. I mean, I got, when I even know, just when I was in my 20s, like yeah. for what I had, you know, if ever, if, you know, if someone in college reached out to me, even though in my mind I was just at a law school, didn't know nothing from any or anything yeah. from anything. Yeah. The fact they're reaching out means I was just a little bit ahead of them and yeah. walked the path they're looking to walk. And That's right. I've always tried to, um, in my business and my community life, to to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important. It's something that I think so. I hope carries on in my later years as well. Yeah. And so, in closing, before I give, give you the final word, I I do want to ask for just three pieces of advice you would give for Austin's uh, next generation of business and community leaders. Um. What, what I would say is that, first of all, um, they need to take the time and make the effort to get to know their community's history. Um, and when I say history, I mean what has taken place in certain spaces and places and even times, what have been events um, that have taken place. So that would be the first thing, to know, to take time and and not to get so consumed by the issues uh, of the day that you think that what you're doing is new. Uh, It's all building on something, somebody, some event that has taken place before you got here. Uh, And so you need to take time just to, to study it and to know it, which speaks to uh, 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 approaching it with a sense of respect. The the other, th- the second thing I would say is, as you lead, lead with humility uh, and a sense of. In the church, there's a word, Greek word we use called koinonia, um, which basically speaks of uh, a, a special kind of community where there's a fellowship, where there's support. And I think that if, uh, uh, if you lead from a place of not knowing everything, but a place of humility, um, uh, then that will serve you well. Uh, sometimes I observe uh, attitudes uh, of those who are moving into leadership positions that they know everything uh, and don't want to necessarily listen uh, to those who may have uh, been through some of the things that they're trying to go through and from whom they can they can learn. Um, the, the third thing I would say would be uh, lead with 
Uh, here's a Christian word, love. Uh, lead with a sense of stewardship that, that you have been handed something by way of your leadership role. Uh, in terms of when you are a community leader, people are entrusting you with uh, it as a steward. Um, and so you have to handle handle that space and that privilege that you're giving uh, as that you are accountable uh, for someone else. And then uh, to make sure that you have good works, uh, that what you do is good works. And if I were speaking with a Christian population, of course, I would say to them that all of this is filtered through what we understand to be expected of us from a Christian perspective. Great, and I want to give you the final word, just um, whatever like, parting advice or wisdom you want to okay. provide to the audience. Yeah. <laughs> that I've already given out. It's yeah, been, I've been a great. <laughs> I've already given probably well all that. All right, well, well, Pastor Parker, thank you for your time. I definitely wanted to get you on the show um, down the road again. AJ, and, thank um, you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. This is uh, a great opportunity. And uh, uh, I admire you for taking your time to even do something like this. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's BG podcast. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com podcast and iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe to stay current on future posts. Thank you to our sponsor, The Lowy Law Firm. You can find more information about them in the show notes.